lockdowns, mass surveillance, forever war. Is this still the land of the free? It will be again. I'm Eric Brakey, and it's time to free America now. Because an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome everyone to a very special episode of Free America Now. If you are uh, listening to the podcast version of this show, know that this is a special episode because we are coming live on Facebook on the pages of Young Americans for Liberty and and some of my personal pages as well uh, because today is Constitution Day and I feel like that's something that's something that uh, especially this year needs to be acknowledged, needs to be celebrated, needs to be defended. You know, I woke up this morning and I thought, you know, isn't it interesting how many absurd federal holidays there are? I mean, even labor unions get a holiday, but for some reason, Washington, D.C. doesn't give the, <laughs> the U.S. Constitution a federal holiday. Um, I don't know. Read into that what you want to. But I'm Eric Brakey, the renegade statesman and senior spokesperson for Young Americans for Liberty. And I want to thank all of you who are joining us live on Facebook today for a live conversation about the Constitution dispelling a lot of these constitutional myths that have plagued our country and been used to erode the the very principles that the Constitution was founded on. We're going to be talking about this, uh, but please share your comments in the comments section of this video. I love seeing what you're thinking. And hey, we got one question that I'd love to hear your answers on. What's your favorite part of the U.S. Constitution? Or alternately, if you're a contrarian, as uh, you know some uh, libertarians are, what's your least favorite part of the Constitution? I'd love to hear it. Uh, and if we have some good answers come in, I'll be sure to take them and uh, respond to them live during this broadcast over the course of the next hour. So. Hey, let's hop right in. Of course, we are in unprecedented times where our federal government, (laughs) I feel like I've been saying this forever, our federal government ignores our constitution, but they seem to be ignoring it under this current administration more than ever before with a president who even (laughs) thinks he can go so far as to dictate law about what you need to inject into your own body. Is this how far we have gone in losing our Constitution? Not only does President Joe Biden disregard the separation of powers between the three branches of of the federal government, the legislature, the executive, the judicial, the legislative branch, Congress is supposed to make laws, not the President of the United States declaring vaccine mandates. But also, of course, it big, you want to scratch your head and wonder, did we even give the federal government in general, including the Congress, did we even give them this power in the first place? I think if you understand the Constitution and you really read it, the answer is clearly no, not at all. Anyway, today we're going to be dismantling some of the constitutional myths that exist. And I've got my own pocket constitution here with me today. I've carried this thing with me for years. During my years in the Maine State Senate, whenever there was uh, an absurd proposal coming forward that curtailed the liberties of the people, I'd just pull my pocket constitution out and say, huh, you know, the Bill of Rights says that government isn't supposed to be able to do that. And uh, it's always good to have this on hand with you. So anyway, let's let's hop right in. So first of all, I think before we dismantle some of the specific myths, it's worth understanding the nature of the Constitution itself. Because there is a, um, I guess one of the greatest myths is this idea that the Constitution is a living document. And what do people mean when they say it's a living document? I mean, what when they say this, what they are really mean is that we can interpret the Constitution to whatever, to mean whatever we want it to mean. The Constitution changes with the time. The meaning changes with the times. And if you understand the fact that the Constitution is 
a contract. It is a contract between the government, the federal government and the people, or more specifically, it was ratified by the states. So it's a contract between the federal government and the state governments. And in our state governments, we have our own individual state constitutions, which are, you know, uh, another part of that link, the, co the contract between the states and the people. Um, if, we under if we understand that, that it's a contract, then we really should be skeptical of this claim that the constitution is a living document that it can just be reinterpreted over time. Imagine for a moment you had a contract with your employer and it was, hey, you're going to do X amount of work and your employer is going to pay you a hundred bucks for that and you complete the job and uh, your employer and you go and expect payment and your employer gives you $50 instead of the hundred dollars you agreed upon. You scratch your head and you say, what, what is this? The, the, the contract says I'm supposed to be paid $100 and say, well, it's a living contract and um, uh, I interpret it differently than you do. Well, that wouldn't work out like that. You can't just reinterpret a, a contract after the fact against the terms that were un mutually understood when it was all agreed upon. But that's exactly what the federal government has done over the course of two and a half centuries with our contract with the federal government. It's not to say that the Constitution is a perfect document. Certainly there are flaws and there is a process for amending the Constitution in Article 5 of the Constitution. There are ways that we can amend the Constitution. We've amended it over time, but there haven't been many real amendments to the Constitution lately because the federal government has just realized that they can you know, use the courts to interpret it however they want to grant them all the power that they would like to exercise. But our founding generation intended the Constitution as a grant of very specific, limited, enumerated powers. And we, we, we know this. We can read Article 1, Section 8, which is grants that, that, that grant of specific enumerated powers to the Congress. And then the Tenth Amendment, which says, all powers not granted to Congress are reserved respectively to the states and the people. So let's dismantle some, some of these specific myths though. So if it's not a living document, it is a fixed document. It means specific things. I consider myself a constitutional originalist. I think that's the way the constitution should be interpreted. But let's go through some of these specific myths on specific issues that we're often told all about uh, and are used to grossly expand federal power. So first, let's talk about the general welfare clause. All right. We hear this all the time. The federal government loves the general welfare clause because whenever they want to exercise a power that's not specifically named for them, they say, well, we've been given the authority to, you know, pass laws for the general welfare. Well, that seems really vague and uh, unlimited. I mean, anything can be said before the general welfare. I'm, so what does the general welfare clause actually mean? Well, it's worth noting that general welfare appears two times in the U.S. Constitution. So let's hop to it. The first time is in the preamble. The preamble, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So is that a, is that a grant of power to the federal government? No. That use of the phrase general welfare is simply like, hey, this is why we're establishing a Constitution. These are the goals we want to achieve. But that's not a grant of power in itself. Otherwise, we would just have a preamble and we wouldn't need to have anything else. You could end the Constitution right there if, if, that, if anything there actually granted a power. It's just the preamble explains some of the thinking for why we'd want to have a Constitution. Okay, well, where's the second place in the Constitution that the general welfare is cited? Now, this is, this is a very common one. And this one is actually in Article 1, Section 8, where we grant powers to Congress. So that makes a certain kind of sense. We granted them the power to do whatever they want for the general welfare, right? Actually, not so right. If we 
uh, hop to Article 1, Section 8. And I got to say, Article 1, Section 8 is one of the most important parts of the Constitution to understand. These are the listed enumerated powers for uh, Congress. These are the issues they're allowed to legislate on. If it's not listed in Article 1, Section 8, they don't have the constitutional authority. So, general welfare. All right. Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. All right. Does that sound like we granted the Congress the uh, power to do anything they want under the umbrella of general welfare? No, actually, the general welfare clause is a restriction. It is a condition on the power to tax. What the general welfare clause is doing in this case, it's operating as saying, look, Congress can lay and collect taxes, but they need to do it for the purpose of the general welfare. So they're saying that you can't lay and collect taxes for the specific welfare of special interests. So you can't lay and collect taxes, for example, to bail out the big banks. That would not be for the general welfare. That would be for the special welfare of special interests. So the general welfare clause has been grossly misinterpreted by those who want unlimited power for the federal government. You just have to read the Constitution to understand that. It is, in fact, to check the power of taxation. Now, it's worth understanding that when I say, you know, this would prohibit collecting taxes for bailing out the banks, you might remember we've our federal government had bailed out a lot of banks. In fact, they seem to be collecting taxes from us and not just taxes. I mean, they're inflating the currency at the Federal Reserve with the central bank. They're borrowing money against our children's future, and they're handing it out to special interests all the time. I mean, so Eric, if what you say is true, then they shouldn't be doing that, right? Yeah, you're right. They shouldn't be doing it. Um, in fact, about 90% of everything the federal government does is not authorized by the U.S. Constitution under an originalist interpretation as our founders understood it. But sadly, the Constitution is not capable of defending itself. It's just a piece of paper. It relies on us to defend it, on, on, on people who value the principles of freedom and liberty, because the politicians certainly aren't going to defend this. They swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, and they never think about it again. In fact, when you ask them sometimes, hey, this bill that you're proposing, uh, where in the Constitution is this power authorized? Oftentimes they'll just laugh. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. Yeah, we swear that oath of office, but, you know, the Constitution, it's an archaic document. It was written by, you know, people 200 years ago. And, we, you know, th this, this is sadly the, uh, the, uh, the uh, ideas that have, have taken root in our government. Because frankly, why would they want to be constrained? The Constitution exists to constrain them and the General Welfare Clause exists to constrain their power of taxation. So myth number one, dismantled. The General Welfare Clause is not a grant of infinite power to the federal government to do whatever they want under the General Welfare. It is actually a check on the power of taxation. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about another common myth in the U.S. Constitution that is used all the time to uh, justify sweeping federal powers. Let's talk about the Interstate Commerce Clause. All right. Uh, that is on, uh, <laughs> on, on page 23 here. The Interstate Commerce Clause. Congress says, the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Okay, the Interstate Commerce Clause is used to justify all kinds of ways that the federal government meddles in our economy. If you were walking in Indiana and your shoes were made in Tennessee, they would justify regulating your ability to walk by citing the Interstate Commerce Clause. This is, this is 
how it's often used. This is a gross misinterpretation. First of all, we need to understand the Interstate Commerce Clause under the, ori under the original intent to regulate. Regulate meant something very different than what it means today. Uh, this is sometimes a, an example of the way that government uh, changes the definition to words in order to suit what they want uh, versus actually um, versus versus actually uh, following the original intent of what those words actually meant. To regulate used to mean to make regular, not to control, but to establish certain standards, regular standards across across the states to make interstate commerce possible. Not to curtail interstate commerce, but to make it to make it more possible. Um, so, for example, this would this would this would be used to to ju justify you know if a state wanted to put tariffs or restrictions on goods from another state in the U.S. from coming into their state, this would be uh, the, the the federal government could step in and say no, you you can't do that. That would be making interstate commerce irregular and we want it to be regular. Um, but it, there's also some interesting things here. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Now, if to regulate meant to control every aspect of, it's interesting to note that it's not just among the states, it's also with foreign nations and with the Indian tribes. Do we really think that the US Constitution gives the federal government the government the authority to control commerce in foreign nations that we get to go into France and start regulating them under the modern sense of the word and say hey France you've got to make your goods up to our standards even if you're just you know selling them and consuming them in France even if you're not you know trading with 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 the US of course not that's absurd we never had the authority to do that to France or any other nation. And so, you know, if 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 to regulate means to control, then th it becomes absurd. We don't have the authority to control the production uh, of goods and services in other nations. And Washington, D.C. similarly does not have the authority to control the production of goods and services in the states. And many states are recognizing this and standing up. I think of the state of Missouri, which has stood up to the federal government on certain firearms uh, firearms laws. They've passed things like the Second Amendment Preservation Act, which says that, hey, if our firearms are made in Missouri, sold in Missouri, and used in Missouri, then there's no possible interpretation of the Constitution with any credibility that could call that interstate commerce. We call that intrastate commerce. And therefore, even under a loose understanding of what to regulate means, the federal government has no authority. So this is one of the most abused parts of the Constitution right there with the General Welfare Clause. And that's another myth demolished. Let's talk about another one. And this is a very important one, especially after what we've been through over the last 20 years in this country in the war on terror, and this is war powers. Article 1, Section 8, Congress has the power to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. This is very important. Congress was granted the power to declare war, not the executive branch, not the U.S. president, this power has been abused, and Congress has been glad to get, give this power over to the executive branch unconstitutionally. They don't have the power. Nowhere in the Constitution do we give Congress the power to delegate their powers to other bodies, so they can't do that. But we have, over the last 20 years, really even you go back further, we have had the executive branch, the president, deciding where and when we go to war against other nations. That's not what the founders intended. It's not what they wanted. They made it explicitly clear that they did not want a king controlling the military. James Madison, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, but basically spelled out that the executive branch 
has the most to gain from taking the country to war because the president does have the power to wage war, you know, once war has been declared. So he gets all this power to do, you know, to use force of arms. And so therefore, Madison wrote, they have wisely separated the power to declare war from the power to wage war. And so the president needs to get authorization from Congress to wage war. But that hasn't happened since World War II. Congress has not issued a declaration of war since World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In, now, Congress has passed at various times authorizations for the use of military force, which you could argue under some constitutional standards, maybe that meets the criteria. I, I, I don't believe it does, but at least there's some kind of congressional action authorizing something. But uh, that has been tremendously abused. So we live under right now the 2001 AUMF, which actually tomorrow, Saturday, will be the 20-year anniversary of the 2001 AUMF passed after the, one week after the attacks of 9-11. Now, this was intended, at least Americans understood, that this was to go after al-Qaeda. It was to go after bin Laden in Afghanistan. And yet it was written so broadly that it basically gave the president unlimited authority to wage war anywhere in the world against anyone he chooses, so long as they can create some justification for how this is somehow related to terrorism. Uh, but it is the president who gets to decide whether that is or isn't, and there is no, there's no, there's no uh, outside branch that actually gets to uh, gets to oversee that. And so we have today this 2001 AUMF has been used to do things, you know, this was to go after bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And at this point, it's actually been used to justify the president in the Obama administration 10 years ago, giving weapons to Al-Qaeda, not in Afghanistan, in Syria where nobody imagined, at least there was no public discussion of ever going to war in Syria when the 2001 AUMF was passed. And so, uh, and so literally, this, and this is why Congress must declare war, because Congress has an important oversight function and it's spelled out in the Constitution. So all of these wars that continue to go on today, we're at war in Yemen, in Syria. Thankfully, the war in Afghanistan is coming to a close. <laughs> we're still in uh, Iraq to some degree. Uh, we're in so many, many different countries actively waging war. These are unconstitutional if you understand congressional war powers. So that is another important constitutional principle that must be upheld and another myth uh, 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 demolished. All right. Those are some things in Article 1, Section 8. But let's talk about my personal favorite, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which were written by James Madison, the architect of the Constitution. Uh, so, the, the, and actually there's some interesting history about the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights was pushed for, it was added on as a concession because during the Constitutional Conventions and uh, the state, the Constitutional Convention, the state ratifying conventions, there was a lot of debate between the Federalists who wanted adoption of the U.S. Constitution to replace the Articles of Confederation and the Anti-Federalists who wanted to stay with the Articles of Confederation. You had individuals, Anti-Federalists like Patrick Henry of Virginia, who were who warned that if this Constitution was ratified, it would lead to an increasingly centralized national government, which the Federalist promise was not the case. Said, no, this is a federal government with decentralized powers. Look, in Article 1, Section 8, we gave very limited and enumerated powers. There's no way this federal government becomes a national behemoth that thinks it can do anything in the world. No, it's going to be a weak government of limited powers. 
is what they said back then, is what the Federalist Papers, the arguments for ratifying the Constitution said back then. Looking forward in history, you start to wonder if maybe Patrick Henry had a point because of where we are today. But one of the concessions was from James Madison and the Federalists was that we'll pass a Bill of Rights. If we ratify this Constitution and the state ratifying conventions, well, James Madison said, well, I'm running for Congress from Virginia and I will draft the Bill of Rights you know, to, to get that in the Constitution. They argued that it wasn't necessary because, I mean, why would you need a Bill of Rights? Because it's just presumed. We're giving specific enumerated powers to the federal government and all other powers rest with the people. So basically, if it doesn't say the federal government can do it, then you, you have your rights. We don't need to say it explicitly, but people wanted it said explicitly just like as extra insurance. And so we have the first 10 amendments. Though looking today, even with those rights written down, it's hard to see where, what we still have intact. Let's go through the Bill of Rights real quickly. We, of course, have the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. It's worth asking, is the First Amendment still intact? <laughs> I don't know. Over the course of these last two years, it certainly seems that we haven't had our right to assemble. They've restricted Governments have restricted our ability to gather together, often, you know, in in political, politically, uh, to, to, to petition the government over these lockdowns and shutdowns. I remember I was at, uh, you know, in my home state of Maine, I was at open Maine rallies when all of this first started, when the government told us we were not allowed to assemble. We were not allowed to gather together. Oh, you can only have... 10 people gathering together, 25 people, 50 people. Well, we gathered by the hundreds because that's our constitutional right. But they say that we don't have that anymore. Do we have the freedom of religion? They were shutting down churches. We don't have our freedom of religion. The government doesn't seem to recognize it anymore when churches can get shut down. Do we have our freedom of speech? Government is actively putting pressure on social media companies to shut down speech that they do not like, that go against their narratives on what they tell us the truth is. Government would love to be in the position to be the arbiter of truth, the ministry of truth like we had out in 1984. This is what the First Amendment was designed to protect against. But the First Amendment does not seem to be intact. And of course, we have the Second Amendment, very controversial Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. All right, let's dissect that a little bit. People get often hung up on the first half of that sentence, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, okay? That's a qualifier, though, that, that, or that's a, that's a, that's a just, it's kind of like the preamble of the Constitution. It doesn't actually say anything. It's, it's just saying some of the thought process for why this right is so important. It's kind of like saying, you know, hot dogs being a tasty treat to enjoy on Saturdays, the right of the people to, you know, purchase and enjoy hot dogs shall not be infringed. Did that just say that you only have the right to enjoy hot dogs on Saturday? No, it's just like, hey, this is a good reason for it. But the operative part of that is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And further, it's worth understanding what is the militia? In the understanding that the founders had, the militia is you and me. The militia is every, well, you know, at that time, every able-bodied uh, man, generally from the ages of 18 to, you know, uh, you know, soon you start to get a little elderly. So let's say 18 to 50. That was the militia. The militia was people ready to stand, ready to defend their communities. Should they be called upon? Should it be needed? And the militias weren't necessarily directly controlled by the federal government. Uh, you know, people were ready to stand ready. That's why we had the Minutemen. And of course, the militias today, uh, the militias of, of, of yesteryear became the state national guards of today, which have been 
tremendously abused by the federal government in their own right, which is why I support Defend the Guard legislation, but that's a story for another day. So the Second Amendment, the right, right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But <laughs> I, look at all the infringements we have on the Second Amendment. Look at the fact that uh, you have to go through a, uh, a background check in order to get legal access to a firearm. Now, I know background checks, people saying, oh, background checks sound all great. But here's what background checks are. They are a tax and a barrier to law-abiding citizens to get access to firearms. And they also create the infrastructure for a gun registry. And they do absolutely nothing to stop criminals from getting firearms because they are easy to sidestep if you're willing to violate the law as criminals who would use firearms for criminal purposes obviously are willing to. They call it getting a straw purchase. Someone can purchase a firearm for you who could pass a background check. Or there are always black markets. There are ways for criminals to get access to these firearms so all of these laws that put in place, these gun control laws, oftentimes imposed by Washington, D.C., do nothing and they're unconstitutional and they should be abolished. That's the Second Amendment. Now, the Third Amendment, I used to joke the Third Amendment seemed to be the only amendment to the Constitution that they hadn't violated yet. But in recent years, I'm not sure that we can even say that anymore. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Now, certainly they aren't quartering troops in our homes at this point, thankfully. But they are, with these eviction moratoriums, quartering people in your homes, in your property, without your consent, violating your property rights, violating your, 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 the contracts you have with others. So maybe it's not exactly a violation in the letter of the law of the Third Amendment, but it certainly is, uh, violates the spirit of the Third Amendment. And further, <laughs> if you understand Article 1, Section 8, Congress doesn't have that power in the first place, and Congress didn't even pass this law. An unelected government bureaucracy imposed these eviction moratoriums, um, which our founders will be rolling over in their graves on. Now, another favorite amendment of mine, the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That got thrown away and, uh, in, uh, in 2001 with the passage of the Patriot Act where basically we now allow the federal government to basically get generalized warrants to search everything and everyone. We have mass surveillance systems that access every single person's phone records, every single citizen, your internet browsing history, your text messages, everything. Washington, D.C. says they can do that. They can't. Not constitutionally. The Fourth Amendment is pretty darn clear. I'm going to gloss over a little bit, for the sake of time, the, 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 the Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Amendments, which are all about the criminal justice system. But, you know, I will say, in this era of mass incarceration, it's pretty clear that they are being violated as well. But then we come to my, I would say, actually, my two favorite amendments in the Bill of Rights. Congressman Thomas Massey often cites this, the Ninth Amendment as his favorite amendment, and for good reason. This amendment often gets totally overlooked. People don't uh, think of the Ninth Amendment very often, but it may be the most important. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Okay? Your freedoms, your rights are infinite. It is the powers of the federal government that are finite 
and enumerated. That's what the Constitution says. So that's the government seems to have turned that on its head today. They think they can do whatever they want and our rights are limited to those things that are written down. And even those things written down, as Joe Biden says, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. B.S. The Ninth Amendment is explicit. Your rights are infinite. Just because we didn't think of every single right and wrote it down, because how could you if your rights are infinite? We cannot write down every single thing. They are innumerable. The Ninth Amendment says that those rights belong to you. I often bring up the Ninth Amendment when arguing with folks about the Second Amendment who say that the Second Amendment is about militias and it's not about an individual right to keep and bear arms. They're wrong. But I tell them, look, let's suppose you were right. Let's suppose that the Second Amendment is just about keeping and bearing arms in the context of a militia. Fine. The Ninth Amendment says I have the right to keep and bear arms as an individual right. It says that we don't need to have it written down for me to have that right, for you to have that right. We have natural rights as human beings. This is the philosophy that our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence are based upon. You have natural rights to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness, or in the Lockean uh, uh, sense, life, liberty, and property. Those are inalienable to you. They cannot be taken not by any legitimate power. You can, and we did with the Constitution, we gave up certain rights in order to grant certain specific powers to the government. But they have taken far more than we gave them. And that's why we need to stand up. And then the Tenth Amendment. (laughs) The Tenth Amendment is something that is so important for understanding the relationship between the checks and balances of our government. And I don't just mean the, the horizontal checks and balances as we, as we uh, often hear about, the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch. I'm talking about the vertical checks and balances that we do not hear about anymore, but are essential to understanding the Constitution and the system that we're supposed to live under. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So if it's not in Article 1, Section 8, it's up to the states. Now, the states actually have a lot more latitude to put laws in place that that affect our day-to-day lives than the federal government under the Constitution. If a state wanted to control health care, provided the state constitution allows it to do that, that would be the place to do it constitutionally. I'm against government involvement in these things. I think government tends to muck things up. From, but from a constitutional perspective, if you wanted to regulate health care, if you want to regulate you know, uh, so many things, you could do that on the state level. Now, every state constitution is different. Some state constitutions even allow for, you know, gun control. I'm proud of my state constitution in Maine, which does not, and specifically includes many of the items in the Bill of Rights in our own Declaration of Rights. But your state might be different. Every state constitution is different. And that's what America is supposed to be. We are not one giant city. We are not one giant amorphous blob of 300 plus million people. We are a collection of societies, 50 different societies. This is a very large union, very culturally diverse. Maine is different than California. Texas is different than Florida. Wyoming is different than Oregon. All right? And if we're going to live together, if we're not going to if we're going to live together without killing each other, <laughs> We've got to respect the Tenth Amendment. We've got to respect the right of people in their own states to develop policies in a decentralized manner for what makes sense for them and their values and their culture. Otherwise, we're going to forever be at each other's throats 
trying to dominate each other in every single presidential election, every single election to Congress in the U.S. Senate, everything becomes a war because it feels like that's what's at stake because now we have a federal government that decides everything from what gets injected into your body to what kind of bathrooms you can, like what kind of toilet you can have in your house to, you know, the, the most the most intimate things about your health care, the most intimate things about how your children are educated are being centrally planned in Washington, D.C. Our founding generation would be shocked to see that this is the kind of government we have inherited. This is not the government that they intended to leave for us. This is not a government that protects individual liberty. This is not a government that respects the Constitution. And maybe that's why Constitution Day does not have a federal holiday. <laughs> anyway, that's a brief overview. Let's go to the comments section. Let me see what you're saying. I know I've seen a lot of comments coming in, so let me hop up here. Uh, Joe says SCOTUS has trampled on the Constitution as much as the presidents and representatives have. That's a very good point. The if Actually, from the very beginning, Thomas Jefferson realized that, <laughs> you know, the uh, his Democratic Republican Party was winning federal election after federal election. This was the party of limited government, of originalist understanding of the Constitution. But... The John Adams administration had stacked the court with Federalists who wanted a broad and expansive understanding of the Constitution, really wanted a national government over a federal government. And he wrote how, you know, it's crazy how we can keep electing people to the federal government and yet the courts are undermining the entire constitutional system. It's worth understanding that the Supreme Court was never intended as the final arbiter of constitutionality. The states created the federal government. The states ratified the Constitution at the state ratifying conventions. And that's why Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions that were passed, you know, they wrote these, they were passed under the John Adams administration when John Adams signed into law the Sedition Act criminalizing speech against the federal government. They looked at this and said, this is unconstitutional. And the courts weren't going to do anything about it. The courts were basically on the take of, you know, they were, they were supporters of John Adams. It was already partisan from the very beginning. And so they said the states have a responsibility to stand up against these unconstitutional federal laws. The states have a responsibility to declare these laws null and void because we never the states never gave the federal government the power to restrict speech. In fact, they specifically prohibited it with the Bill of Rights. So if we're looking to the courts to save us, we're going to be waiting a long time. Perhaps they might get do something good here or there, but ultimately the best thing we can do is get good people elected to the state legislatures like we do here at Young Americans for Liberty with Operation Win at the Door. We identify strong, principled, liberty-minded candidates for the state legislatures. We send our activists to go out and knock doors to get them elected, and now we have over 170 liberty legislators elected in 37 states across the country who are standing up for the Constitution, standing up for the principles of liberty, and who are not afraid to stand up and have the states say that federal law is unconstitutional and we will not abide by it. And that's what needs to happen. Whether it's gun control they're pushing, federal control of our health care, federal control of our education system, abuse of our National Guardsmen, the states can stand up because the courts, the federal courts, and we've got to remember the federal courts are appointed by federal politicians. There might be a little bit of a bias in there when there is a decision that has to be made between state power and federal power. Yeah, they're, 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 <laughs> they're appointed by the people who want more federal power. So there has been a drift towards centralized federal power so long as we rely exclusively on federal courts. That's not what the Constitution intended. Joe points out the government should never bail out the banks. Hear, here. 
All right, L looking at some um, other comments. Pamela says, someone needs to tell Biden this. He needs to get out of the White House and the USA. Well, certainly, Joe Biden has, with his his sweeping vaccine mandate, calling for Americans to be fired from their jobs from private companies. We're not talking about government employees. We're talking about private employees. He's saying he's commandeering private companies and saying they've got to fire their employees if they don't get vaccinated. Now, you can have whatever opinion you want about the vaccines. Personally, I'm neither pro-vaccine nor anti-vaccine. I think for some people, the vaccine makes sense. Some people, the vaccine doesn't make sense. Does it make sense for you? I'm not a doctor. You should talk to your doctor and find out and come to an informed decision for yourself. Some people have a history, family history of you know immune system issues and maybe it doesn't make sense for them. Some people have already recovered from COVID and it, um, uh, they have natural immunity. Maybe it doesn't make sense for them or maybe it does. Talk to your doctor, figure that out. But that should be a conversation between you and your doctor. You have medical autonomy. The Ninth Amendment protects your right to make your own medical decisions. And Joe Biden is clearly violating his oath of office. And for that, yeah, that is an impeachable offense, violating the Constitution. Now, I will say that most presidents have violated their oath of office. In fact, probably every president, uh, with maybe a few rare exceptions that I can think of, probably deserved to be impeached on the grounds of overstepping their constitutional authority. Uh, but that's never what they're impeached for. Um, because that would be uh, that, <laughs> that would be giving away the game. And the federal government doesn't want to set precedents that there are limits on federal power. So Congress generally doesn't impeach presidents for the things that are actually impeachable. They often do it on BS grounds. Um, but Joe Biden certainly has. But what is unique about Joe Biden is he may be the first president to openly acknowledge that he is, in fact, violating the Constitution. He openly acknowledged when it came to the eviction moratorium, yeah, we don't have the constitutional authority to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Whoa. <laughs> At least past presidents pretended to follow the Constitution. They pretended that they, their oath of office meant something to them. Joe Biden openly flouts it. And he's done it again with the vaccine mandate. He said in the past, the federal government doesn't have the authority to mandate these vaccines. Now he says, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. In a just society, in, in a, under a system that really valued the Constitution, he would be impeached. And he should be impeached. Moving on. Let's see. Looking for any uh, um, questions. Matt points out in the Declaration of Independence, it says we have the right and duty to overthrow any government that no longer honors our inalienable rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a foundational principle of our American system. America, you know, I know this has become kind of a dirty word, but America was founded on an act of secession. Now, personally, I hope that we can save our union by decentralizing, restoring the Constitution, and following the Tenth Amendment. I think that's the only way the union will be saved because right now we are at each other's throats and we are not on a good course. But you're right, Matt, that is our right. It is the right of the people to, and in fact, you know, in my pocket constitution here, I have, uh, it's also have the Declaration of Independence. Um, well, you know what, that might, that might take too much time to look up, but you're right, Matt. Let's see. Um, Looking for any questions that you might have. Steve says, really liked your wisdom. Everybody wants the power. I'm wondering what they want to do with it. Though I think you're actually not responding to me. I think you're responding to someone else. 
Um, that's all well and good. Um, Joe says, this Congress having power for oversight over anything scares me. Uh, I agree. I do not have a very favorable opinion of Congress, but, you know, this is the brilliance of the separation of powers that our founders built into the system is they wanted to build a system where it, it didn't require people of good character. It didn't require people who, you know, just wanted to do the right thing. It is a system that understands human nature, understands the temptations of power, and it sought to build a system that pits ambition against ambition. The thinking was that the Congress and the legislative branch would jealously guard the power granted to the legislature from the executive branch because why would they give up their own power to an executive branch? I think they perhaps underestimated the power of political parties. It turns out that a Democrat Congress is perfectly willing to give up its powers when there's a Democrat president because they don't think of it as losing their powers. They think of it as, oh, they don't have to take controversial votes. <laughs> They'll just let the president do it and he'll do all the things they want to do. Of course, it's very short-sighted, I suppose, when you think of it a little bit because no one party stays in power forever. The powers you grant to the executive branch when your guy is in charge become the powers that the executive branch has when the other guy is in charge. And I think that's an important lesson. Never build up the machinery of government when your people are in charge if you would be uncomfortable with your adversaries having that power when they are in charge. Because as our system shows, the pendulum swings. No one stays on top forever. The ring of power shifts hands. That's the nature of things. That's why we were supposed to have limited government, decentralized government, where power cannot concentrate too much in the hands of one person or one body. All right. Uh, looking for any more questions that you have. We just have a few minutes left. Wendy asked, which amendment applies to children to not wear a mask in school? So first of all, I would say that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that it's very clear under Article 1, Section 8 that we never gave the federal government the authority to mandate masks in schools. I mean, frankly, we never gave the federal government the authority over education at all. And yet we have a federal department of education. Isn't that interesting? That was created under Jimmy Carter in the 1970s. We've spent billions of dollars at the federal department of education. And since then, the quality of education has only declined. Maybe centralizing, maybe having centrally, central planning over education is not only unconstitutional, but perhaps it's also not effective. Perhaps we should let education decisions be made by parents and teachers and maybe local school boards. People actually are close to the students who are being taught because one size fits all doesn't work in education. Every student learns differently. And we need to have individualized education plans for kids rather than a one-size-fits-all plan for hundreds of millions of kids. Anyway, I digress. So the federal government does not have the authority to mandate masks. Now, you have Joe Biden saying he's going to try to get these governors out of the way, like DeSantis in Florida, who are trying to stop mask mandates from being imposed. He has no authority to do that. That is another violation of his, his, oath of off, his oath of office. Though I will say that, depending on your individual state constitution, the state governments do have the authority to make those decisions. Now, I want to say I am totally against mask mandates in schools. Well, I'm against mask mandates in general, but especially in schools. You know... To think about what we are subjecting our, our kids to in these government schools. I mean, our government schools become more and more like prisons every single day. 
with, with enforcers making sure all the kids are socially distanced and can't be near each other and they got to wear masks on their faces when, frankly, there's research that has shown that, especially at young ages, kids need to see people's faces. This is part of this, you know, this is part of, of brain development and understanding, you know, social interaction. And of course, kids are at incredibly low risk. The flu, I mean, this is, research has shown that for the most part, in a general sense, kids are at more risk from the flu virus from the COVID virus. It's the opposite with kids as than it is for old people, for older, pe older people or those with underlying health conditions. Um, yeah, people are at risk and, you know, people should take precautions for themselves. But this makes no sense for kids. Anyway, so I'm against all of this as a policy, but the states do have the right to decide these policies. So if California wants to impose mask mandates, I'm sorry, I, I, I feel bad for the people of California, they should fight against that. But that is the right of California to decide, not the right of the federal government to decide. And the same is true for Florida. If Florida wants to ban mask mandates, that is the right of Florida to decide, not the role of Joe Biden or anyone in the federal government to grant that decision-making power to Washington, D.C., one way or the other, is a violation of the Constitution. And for all the time they spent calling Donald Trump a dictator when he was president, the irony is they were calling him a dictator as he was refusing to assume unconstitutional federal powers to micromanage the states during this. We have to let states make these calls. And we, because we, the people, and Thomas Jefferson understood this well. Thomas Jefferson talked about the only place where democracy really works is on the local level. The more local it is, the bigger a share of voice the individual has in the decisions that are made. But democracy becomes an illusion when we are doing it on such a grand scale. Why should a hundred, why should a hundred million people be able to take away the rights of 50 million people? When you, the bigger the pool of votes, the less your individual vote counts for anything. All right, I'm gonna take one last question then we're gonna wrap up for the day. I wanna say thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Let me look for one final question. Um, let's see. I'm seeing a lot of good comments. Uh, well, all right. So we'll just end with a good comment. James says, the deck is stacked against all of us unless we work together. You know, that reminds me of the words of Benjamin Franklin. We must all hang together or we will surely hang separately. Very true words, especially these days. I see so much infighting all the time among people who love freedom and liberty. I see infighting over, you know, what we should focus on, what the best tactics are, or an interpretation of, you know, disagreement on this policy or that policy. I think those of us who love freedom and liberty, we must, if we want to defend our constitution, if we want to defend against this rolling authoritarianism that is arriving on our doorstep, we have to hang together or we must all hang separately. If you have an idea on how to make liberty win that's different from how I think to do it, go out and do it. Be a good example and others will follow you if your idea works. For me, I think we need to focus on winning the state legislatures and standing up to the federal government, standing up for our constitution by getting regular people, people who love liberty elected in the states. So much can be done from the state legislatures. That's what I choose to do. That's what I focus on. That's what Young Americans for Liberty focuses on. And I invite you to be a part of it with us. 
If you have not already liked the Young Americans for Liberty Facebook page to get regular updates on what we're doing and also just a ton of great good Liberty content, be sure to like the, the Young Americans for Liberty Facebook page right now. And you can go to our website, yaliberty.org to learn more about Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, you can, Of course, you can make a donation to the cause, which is always appreciated. You can sign up to become one of our Operation Win at the Door activists to knock doors for principled constitutionalists running for the state legislatures across the country to save America, to free America now. And perhaps you're someone who's thinking about running for your own state legislature. And if that's true, great. Go to yaliberty.org and fill out our candidate survey. Let us know where you stand on the issues. And if you're in alignment with the principled understanding of our constitution and the principles of liberty, and you're in a district where you might actually be able to win, then we'd love to support you. So go to yaliberty.org and learn more. So, all right, everyone, I'm going to sign off. This is Eric Brakey, the renegade statesman and senior spokesperson for Young Americans for Liberty. I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Constitution Day, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. And furthermore, my opinion is the Federal Reserve should be destroyed. Thank you, everyone.